Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe and stream The Groundless Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, and YouTube. And of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. Allison Ash is a brilliant educator, author, and creator of many sex-positive workshops, including her upcoming very popular masterclass. This dialogue was stunningly rich and informative for both of us. We freely converse about sex positivity and how consent skills make it possible to skillfully and joyfully give and receive pleasure, flirt and seduce, have more intimacy, and better understand monogamous and non-monogamous relationships. We also discuss how the lingering pain and shame from sexual trauma impedes healthy sexuality and what systemic resolution of sexual trauma entails. This episode is a romp through a diverse landscape of context and practices in which sex positivity is being experienced and enjoyed. Allison Ash, I'm super excited. Being able to talk about healthy sexuality is something I have so wanted to do on the Groundless Ground podcast, and I can't think of anyone better to do this with than you. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here with you. We can start with a lot of things, but I have to say my listeners are a big fan of my guests telling a little bit about how they got where they are, how you developed, not just this interest, but also the journey that you've been on, which is super interesting. So would you mind just say a little bit about your history? Be happy to. I grew up without having much healthy intimacy modeled for me. And I think I grew up without having the level of close relationships that I wanted, bumbling my way through, making a lot of mistakes and finding myself in a lot of disempowering situations and not really having the tools or even really the modeling and templating to know what else was possible. I think a lot of my adult life has been about learning some of these fundamental intimacy skills that I believe I missed growing up. And then I think whenever you can see the water that everybody's swimming in, it's so much easier to help explain it to other people and to break it down and to teach it in a really nuanced way, but also to be able to translate it for the techie and scientists, as well as the more spiritual woo people, as well as the academics and clinicians, and to be able to take something like intimacy, which I really do believe is a skill, and like any skill, we can get better at it with proper instruction and practice, and then teaching people and giving them access to that instruction and practice across a wide variety of demographics. And I think that's been so healing for me to be able to offer to others what I was so desperately seeking and I think unable to find for so much of my own life. And I think that is a ubiquitous story, certainly among women, maybe also among men, but I know in my clinical setting, I would have to say 99% of the people that I've worked with really don't have any sense of what intimacy is. So Maybe what we should do is uh, define some terms. How does that sound? That sounds great. 
And sometimes if you're on the same page about terms, it makes conversations like this easy because words like sex, sexuality, intimacy, I mean, it's all sort of up for inter interpretation. That's right. And then we use the same word thinking that we're talking about the same thing and oftentimes we're not. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I think we could both agree when it comes to sex, people rarely talk about it. What for you falls under the category of intimacy? Well, I love the mnemonic device, into me, you see, intimacy. Because I think intimacy is this experience of feeling vulnerably exposed, seen and understood, and accepted for who you are, and that the other person is also letting you in on who they are. It's this mutual shared vulnerability. And I think it can be helpful to break intimacy down into three subcategories. So we have emotional intimacy, which is this experience of feeling deeply understood on an emotional level. And you likely have emotional intimacy with your close friends, with your family members, hopefully with a handful of people. Nourishing self-care actually is in having healthy emotional intimacy. Then there's physical intimacy, which is this experience of being close to somebody physically affectionate, cuddling, holding hands, hugging, kissing. We might have physical affection with our family members and our close friends. It doesn't necessarily have that erotic charge. And then there's sexual intimacy, which has that erotic charge. It has that sense of desire and attraction and turn on. And there's also, of course, a vulnerability in having sexual intimacy. You may have sex with somebody and have no intimacy with them and not feel really safe to be fully you and to express yourself and to be emotionally and physically naked with them and all of these experiences that I think intimacy creates the safety for. Sex can happen without intimacy in the picture at all. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes it does for people. And that's when sex can feel really depleting or um, the opposite of nourishing, or you might have a shame over the next day. And this isn't true for everybody. I mean, you can have amazing hot sex without sexual intimacy, but I also just want to break down this notion that you need to know somebody incredibly well to have intimacy with them. I've had some one night stands that were deeply sexually intimate and vulnerable and heart opening and exposed and co-created and I've had sexual encounters, especially early on in life with somebody that I knew quite well that felt completely devoid of intimacy. That example you gave of being met so deeply with someone who you, you may never have met until right then and there. I think people have the idea that it isn't possible to have closeness unless you have knowing, unless you've already built relationships. Maybe it's important as we continue to go through this to keep reiterating sexuality, gender identity, sexual identity, they are a spectrum and they are fluid for humans. And there is no one standard, even though culturally, I think you and I can both agree there's been a standard monogamous and two genders only. Yep. Heteronormativity is certainly still the standard in our society. Yes. That was beautiful. Thank you for that yeah. definition. How about the word sex positive? What does this mean to you? To me, sex positive means that you are focusing on three things when it comes to sex, consent, pleasure, 
and positive effect on well-being. And I think that that is both considered during and after, right? Um, if you have an experience and afterwards you feel really horrible about it, there might be something there that you could look at that could uh, help make that experience feel more sex positive for you in the future. And also, I think when we think about sex positivity, it's important to not just think about the well-being of people involved, but also the well-being of people immediately affected. So for example, if I want to have sex with my partner in a public park, and we've consented and we're having a lot of pleasure, but there might be some children around who haven't consented, I would not say that that's sex positive. In some ways, sex positive can still include cultural norms. I think that was a very good example in terms of some public display that may not actually be in line with the health and well-being of the collective. And that you're not actually getting consent from the people who are impacted. It's very different than if you're going to a play party. Everybody who's at a play party has consented to be in the sexual environment versus being in a public space where that hasn't been consented to. And then another thing about the two of us, we're both in the Bay Area. You just used the term play party. And I can tell you, there's probably a lot of listeners that have no idea what you're talking about. And that is something we're so used to here because this is a very sex positive, in general, very inclusive, very experimental environment. Do you want to clue people in who may not know what a play party is? Sure, yeah. A play party is a party where sex may be happening. It's not necessarily a party where everybody goes and is having sex. I think that that's one of the misconceptions around play parties. I, I teach a workshop called the ins and outs of play parties. And what I like to tell folks is that it's a party where everything is on the table. And it's really helpful to go into it with low expectations, but acknowledging the high possibilities that exist there. And it's a space to meet other sex positive people who are oftentimes non-monogamous and oftentimes questioning the status quo around what is a healthy, pleasurable sexual encounter. We are very lucky in the Bay Area to have such a rich play party culture, but there are Play parties in major cities around the world. And it's really wonderful to get to see this safe space for sexual experimentation, but also for consent culture to permeate more deeply because that's really beautifully interwoven with the play party culture. So there's a few trends that are happening and becoming more commonplace. And I think most of my colleagues in the psychology community would agree with me that porn use has become very commonplace among youth. So much so that actually the material, sadly, is informing them and their ideas about what sex is and what sex involves. So I'm curious, would you like to give your sense of how this trend may be impacting the way sex is being distorted among young people but also maybe what you're seeing, even in the people who take your classes and who work with you when you do the coaching work. You know, I think that when we're talking about porn, it can be helpful to actually differentiate between porn and erotica, to talk about how we can consume erotica in a variety of formats. So we have visual porn. We now have podcasts with 
audio porn. You can listen to audio porn and it sounds of people having sex or masturbating. There are short stories and novels and stills. And there's so many different ways that we can consume erotica. And erotica is also different from porn in that it has some emotional element to it. There is a connection between the humanity of the person and the sexual act that's happening. Now, this doesn't mean it's not kinky or it can't be any of those things. It can be, but there's also just a connection with humanity there. So when we're thinking about porn, I think one of the challenges with porn is that in order to compete with the huge amount of material that is being put out every single day, it is creating a incentive for producers and actors to create more and more sensationalized and intense and edgy sexual acts. The harmful effect that I have found when working with clients from porn, particularly I think with folks who have really grown up watching this very intense version of porn, which by the way, there is sex positive and feminist and queer and all sorts of kinds of porn out there that depicts much more realistic sexuality. So I don't want to say all porn is like this, but Certainly the stuff that you get for free when you go to your website is mostly this kind of porn. And it creates an internal dynamic for somebody where they're constantly seeking that level of intensity to be able to get off. And that subtlety and softness and slowness and emotional vulnerability and sexual exploration and spacious marinating all of those yummy elements of sex and also just sexual diversity and variety and body diversity and variety. I think that when we talk about templating and modeling, if porn and this extreme version of porn is all that people have access to for templating and modeling, it's going to give them a very skewed perception of what their own sex should, and I do air quotes here, should look like. Maybe this would be a good point for us to distinguish between sexual violence and some of the, I would say, non-conventional, quote unquote, sexual activity, you know, that doesn't fall under the category of the very limited window of what normative culture says is okay sexual activity. Well, I think that also here what we're talking about a little bit with regards to porn and erotica is the world of fantasies. And I think that in our fantasy world, what's so permission granting is that we don't have to think about things like consent because it's just existing in our mind. And we're allowed to think whatever it is that we want to think. I really believe in mental liberation. It's a core value of mine. This is a safe space where you get to have your thoughts and have your fantasies that gets to not impact anybody else harmfully. Sexual violence comes in when you're interacting with somebody else and you're violating their consent, you're taking away their capacity to consent, you're violating their boundaries, or you're creating the conditions under which they do not feel like they have the right to have boundaries or the right to express boundaries. When we think about kink and power play, I don't think that that's sexual violence if the conditions are set up such that the person who is submissive has the ability to consent and share their boundaries, maybe beforehand in the scene, through safe words during the scene, afterwards when debriefing. These aspects of co-creating 
a safe, pleasurable, consensual experience, I think is so important when you're interacting with somebody else. And I think that that requires oftentimes skill and nuance that unfortunately can be really hard to learn and discern. Of course, there'll be people who listening to this who would push back and say, choking during sex, how is that consensual? How is that safe? Well, choking is an interesting example because it can be very unsafe, right? And oftentimes when people want to be choked, they're actually not wanting to have their airway constricted. They're wanting to have somebody push on the carotid artery, which is stopping blood flow to the brain, which is why it can be very dangerous. But it can also create a pleasurable kind of a high. And people can really want that sensation and want that feeling and maybe enjoy the risk or enjoy feeling submissive to somebody else's ability to take care of them and to make sure that they're safe. In that way, it can actually be very consensual and pleasurable. When we're thinking about pain versus pleasure, it's important to realize that really it's a lot about perception. Intensity is a scale. And the same action could be perceived actually by the same person as either pleasurable or painful, depending on the context. Yeah. I just want to clarify, you're giving such beautifully clear examples, and I really appreciate how you're uh, engaging with these questions. In that case, what I'm hearing is if someone requests to have some pressure on their throat and the person they're requesting it from, they are also consenting. They're willing to take the responsibility. And so then together, these two people are co-creating, I guess, simulated auto-asphyxiation experience for one of the people. Yeah. My hope is because this is a, a risky act that the parties are doing some research and really informing themselves really well and also exploring slow and creating a lot of space for checking in and for communicating and not doing it in the rush of a sexual act for the first time where it's going to be hard to track and communicate either for the receiver or the giver, but to really treat it with the level of reverence that it deserves and to be in communication around it. More than once, I have had patients, particularly young women in their 20s, tell me that from the get-go in their sexual experiences, they were being choked and they thought it was okay because they had grown up watching porn with mm. tons of choking and that's what they thought sex was. I mean, this is the destructive influence that I think everything you're doing is an antidote for. Much of what you're offering, nobody ever gets because sex is so taboo, period. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it reminds me of this myth of normality that I think when I was younger or our parents' generation, the myth of normality was really perpetuating this idea of a really vanilla sexual discourse. Right? The myth of normality is this idea that we only talk about what's normal. And so it creates this perception of normality based on what people talk about because they're perpetuating this because it's all they're talking about. And really all of these things are happening that they think aren't normal, that they're not talking about because they don't believe it's normal. That's actually really normal when you look at how many people are doing it, right? So this is the myth of normality. And I think what's really sad about the influence of porn on youth today is it's created a different myth of normality, one that's not perpetuating a very narrow version of sex, but one that's perpetuating this very extreme, intense, and as you've pointed to, oftentimes 
violent and not consensual version of sex, I wonder and I worry that it's not granting the permission to want to have a different kind of sex and to have not just the awareness that that exists, but the belief that there are people out there that want to have that kind of sex with you too. Okay, you brought up pleasure. Weirdly enough, pleasure is such a difficult thing for so many people. And my guess is this shows up quite a bit in the people who take your courses. And particularly, I'm just curious, and it's probably because I'm a clinician, so I'm seeing a swath of people that isn't maybe representative of the general swath of people, possibly, but many women have a very limited and even terrified view of pleasure. It's particularly sexual pleasure, having it, giving it. And so I'm just curious, you know, how do you introduce naturalness and the sacredness of sex and pleasure? I love this question. One of the things I talk about is pleasure as a birthright. Being a human means that you are inevitably going to feel pain, but it also means that you get to feel pleasure and that in pursuing pleasure is everybody's intrinsic right. And that we can self-pleasure. And self-pleasure doesn't necessarily have to mean masturbation. It may, but self-pleasure could be anything that brings you a feeling of pleasure, massaging yourself, taking an extra long shower and using the loofah and really enjoying how it feels on your body, wrapping yourself up in a really soft blanket and just putting your hand on your heart and letting yourself rest. All of these are forms of self-pleasure. When I'm talking with folks about pleasure, I'm encouraging them to explore self-pleasure. And I say particularly for women, because I think masturbation is something that is not permitted in the same ways that it is for people who are socialized to be male. And so oftentimes people who've been socialized to be females need some support in developing a self-pleasure practice and learning how to explore their body. And then I also talk about um, the difference between sensory pleasure sensual pleasure and sexual pleasure. So sensory-based pleasure is pursuing pleasure that is appealing to your senses. So my favorite example is to take a bubble bath where you've lit candles, you're listening to your favorite playlist, you have your yummy smelling bubbles in the bath, you have a delicious glass of wine or whatever you enjoy to drink, or maybe some chocolates that you enjoy to eat nearby. You're just appealing to every single sense that you can and treating it with this deliciousness, right? And then there's sensual pleasure, which can be very embodied. It can feel I'm touching my own body as I'm talking to you, as I'm <laughs> trying to describe sensual pleasure. It's this feeling of embodied touch and pleasure. You can feel it with massage. You can feel it when you touch yourself and it starts to awaken the senses in the body, it starts to awaken your nerve endings. It may be a precursor to sexual pleasure and sexual pleasure is pleasure that is really involving a lot of erotic energy and running sexual energy throughout the body. When I'm talking to folks about pleasure, I want to help them realize that any pleasure helps to awaken the pleasure centers in the brain. So starting with sensory-based pleasure prepares you. It's a good foundation for exploring sensual pleasure, which then can help pave the way for exploring sexual pleasure. And I think, of course, self-pleasure underlies it all. People are so disembodied. 
really disembodied. I'd have to say, I think that's one of the biggest things I work with my clients around universally is embodiment and realizing that embodiment is a form of mindfulness. It's the ability to observe what's happening in your body. And when you think about the languages that we communicate in, I think we communicate in the language of thoughts, emotions, and sensations. And the language of thoughts, of course, comes from our brain, but the language of sensations and emotions originates in the body. And if we're not embodied, we are missing out on a huge source of information. And if folks aren't embodied, they may not be able to tune in to those cues, or they may not know how to interpret those cues and make sense of them. And, you know, their heart sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. Being able to connect with your your body is so valuable for knowing your boundaries, embodied consent, and how that changes from moment to moment, your desires and how they unfold and shift and change, your capacity and limits. Um, so much of this information is stored in the body. Thanks to the vagus nerve. That's right. This is the meta conversation between an SE practitioner and a Hakomi practitioner. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You just said something that sparked a question for me. People are also very orgasm-centric. And I wonder if you'd like to just say a little bit about the poverty-stricken view. Yes. Well, I often tell folks that the hardest way to orgasm is to try. <laughs> and one of the easiest ways to orgasm is to be told that you're not allowed to or to have it be taken off the table right? There's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that can develop when we focus really, really hard on trying to orgasm, that it makes it harder to actually experience that pleasure. And for so many people, even for people who are multi-orgasmic, a pleasurable encounter, the ratio of pleasure that's not orgasmic to pleasure that is orgasmic is pretty big because there's so much pleasure. Pleasure is additive. It's exponential. Pleasure increases pleasure. And so if you can be embodied and focus on the pleasure that you're experiencing, I always have said that sex was the first form of meditation that I really excelled at because it allowed me to stay fully present and in my body and in the present moment and tracking how my sensations and pleasure was unfolding from moment to moment. And when I can be in that space of mindfulness, that's when I have the most pleasure. That's when my capacity for pleasure is highest. When I'm talking with folks about pleasure, I'm really trying to decenter orgasm as much as possible and help them increase their capacity for pleasure through embodiment as well as some other, other avenues so that they can feel connected with themselves, feel connected with their partner if they're having an experience with somebody else, because sometimes this is just happening in a self-pleasure context. Enjoy the orgasm should it happen, but not feel so devastated should it not. So many women report they have never had orgasm. It's true. I think that that is a fascinating underreported phenomena. A lot of that utter complete lack is because there's never been permission to explore the sensual, sensory pleasure aspect of everything that softens the tissues and opens all of the, the structures and the vagina and the clitoris to the blood flow. Everything is in freeze. It's all clamped down in dorsal vagal freeze. Mm -hmm. Because for the most part, my hope is it's changing. 
certainly when I grew up, which was quite a long time ago, the idea of having sexual pleasure was completely off limits for me as a woman. It was not on the table, period. It's true. I mean, when we think about sex ed or even biology classes, how many of us <laughs> learned about the clitoris in school? And we put a man on the moon in the 50s. We invented <laughs> the internet in the 70s. We did not understand the full anatomy of the clitoris until 1998. I mean, this is no joke. People out there don't understand their own bodies. When we don't uh, validate self-exploration and masturbation, people aren't necessarily aware of what turns them on and what they like. And if you don't know what you like, it's very hard to tell and teach somebody else. And we've been force-fed this rom-com narrative that when you meet Mr. Right, he's going to know exactly what you like sweep you off your feet, give you that amazing pleasure you've never had before, and everything will be great. And it just doesn't happen that way. Pleasure is something that is co-created. People need to take some personal responsibility for exploring and discovering what they like and learning how to communicate that verbally, non-verbally, before, during, after, however you can with your lovers and partners so that you can have pleasurable encounters. And I think a huge part of it is realizing for people who have been socialized to be women, our main takeaway is that our value is in our body and our capacity to give pleasure and to be sources of pleasure. And so, so many women in heterodynamics are focusing on giving pleasure and be, being sexy, looking sexy, sounding sexy, all the shoulds of performance anxiety come up and the focus is on the other person. And even when the other person may be giving them pleasure, maybe going down on them, for example, they're still worried about what do I look like? What do I smell like? What do I taste like? How long am I taking? Is their hand cramping? Are they still enjoying this? This should be my turn to give and, and reciprocate the ability to receive. And to trust that the other person is enjoying giving and to not worry about them and to just be with your own body and pleasure is a perspective that so many women don't have. And then one more layer to add on top of that, when working with mothers, it is even harder because I think the mother identity and role and prescription in society to always be thinking about somebody else, to be constantly outwardly focused makes it even harder to feel like you have this permission to receive and to connect with your sensual erotic animal self and to just express. Yeah, I feel so sad. Yeah, I hear the same thing from many of my male patients, honestly, that the whole idea of sex as a pleasurable experience, that this is not the way they've been acculturated Either sex is something that you are good at, it has an objective, it has a result, and you ace it. Mm -hmm. Very goal-oriented, lots of performance anxiety for men as well. And I think that the way that it shows up for people with penises is, I mean, oh, I just have so much compassion and empathy, and I just hope that folks out there who don't have penises can hear me for a moment, because imagine how vulnerable it is to have a part of your body that everybody has socially said is a representation of your desire, which means that your desire is on display for others to see in ways that can be deeply vulnerable. Um, and really, penises do not necessarily function that way. Sometimes they're hard when somebody's not feeling desire. Sometimes they're not hard when somebody is feeling desire. Sometimes they want to come and they can't. Sometimes they don't want to come and they do come. And having a part of your 
your body that you don't always have full control over is deeply vulnerable and can be very disempowering. And when your cock is no longer just a body part, but now is a representation of your masculinity and your ability to provide, you're of course going to be very divorced from your own sense of pleasure because it's not about pleasure anymore. It's about proving something. And I think that the way that this gets really sticky in heterodynamics is that because women are socialized to believe that our value is in providing pleasure, they can get very attached to the sight of a hard cock and to ejaculation because they see that as a job well done. And so then men know that and they want to be able to display that. And so that that increases the pressure they feel to be rock hard and to have this explosive orgasm, no matter how old they are or how often they've had sex or whatever other circumstantial factors may be at play. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge these stereotypes that we're acculturated into when they're same sex partners, they're both functioning under these sexual stereotypes. I mean, it really can just be awful. It really is. And I think that what's so valuable is getting to have a lover or partner with a different perspective who relates to themselves and their body or you and your body differently. That's that modeling and templating that we keep talking about and how valuable and healing it can be to just have one partner who shows up differently and can show you a different way. Or hopefully listening to podcasts like these or meeting with you know, support folks like coaches and therapists, but it, we've got to get access to modeling and templating of another way of relating to ourselves. Well, this is why I send my patients to your classes because there's only so much I could do. And ultimately it has to happen in real time on the ground, experientially That's right. for someone to really shift their relationship away from the non-sacred, from the limitation from this feeling of othering your own sexual system, which I frankly see all the time in my patients. It's like another, it's like another entity. And again, maybe this is because obviously I'm a trauma therapist. So I work with a huge number of individuals of all sex, all gender types who have had sexual violation in their childhoods. It's underreported. Mm -hmm. And that really does, particularly if it's repeated and a chronic, this has a tremendous stultifying impact on developing any kind of relationship with your own embodied existence as something other than an object. It's all objectification at that point. You're smiling. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just agreeing. Yeah, I've, I've seen this in, in my work as well. And I think everything that you said, and I'd also a right to have boundaries, even to discern your own boundaries, let alone believe that you have a right to them. If it's a challenge, it might even come down to the level of even being able to discern preferences, because this state of enduring has been so normalized that being able to think about something as anything other than enduring is too hard to imagine. And so enduring is such a beautiful word. And I lived in Japan for four years. So gamansuru, which is the verb for to endure, that's the word for it. This is actually the descriptive verb for a woman's life in Japan. Gamansuru. Wow. You endure. This is what a woman's life is largely. Oh, I just felt this grief wash over my chest as I heard that. Mm. Yeah. I'm imagining that that's not just women in 
you know, there's so much pressure culturally for men as well. Even here in America, there's just such a normalization of enduring. And there's even sometimes uplifting of enduring. Like, oh, you can endure so well. This is a really good thing. Rather than thinking about the fact that we should be looking at the conditions that we're living under that are forcing us to have to be in a chronic state of enduring. Enduring is different than discomfort. Discomfort is normal. It's healthy. Being with discomfort is an important skill that we need to develop. But there's a difference between discomfort and enduring. I think there's also a difference between enduring and tolerance, enduring and diligence, enduring and discipline. Enduring means you've resigned yourself to pain and you've either been told or acculturated or you've decided because of repeated experience that this is your lot. Yeah, very well said. Oh, I just feel that in my chest. It's so hard when I work with clients who really feel that way because I just so deeply empathize with them and it can be very hard for them to take it in and to receive it and to to break out of that mindset. It's a challenge. One of the things I do is some of those words that I just use that I feel are different, the words you use that you feel are different, I will emphasize them. I actually will allow my patients to discern and experience the feeling of diligence to really pendulate back and forth between the horror of enduring and this inner strength and phenomenal power that something like diligence actually can be for a human. I love that. I might borrow that. You get to borrow whatever you want. Your work has shifted so many of the people that I have pointedly said to the masterclass, which we will talk about in just a bit. But before we do that, there's one other topic I know we'll have fun talking about, because again, we live in the Bay Area. We are exposed and normalized to a wide variety of sex and gender identities here, as well as these new forms of coupling, like open marriage and non-monogamy and polyamory. I'm curious if you could just share some of the information that you offer in your workshops to help people open to and navigate some of these unconventional forms, because often this will show up, for instance, in a marriage, a long-term relationship. One of the people wants to try one of these things, and the other one isn't so sure, or they're utterly against it. And I'm sure this shows up. It sure does. Well, the first thing that I'll say is that I think it's a misconception to assume that there's one kind of monogamy and one kind of non-monogamy because there's so many ways to structure a relationship. If you think about monogamy, for some people, kissing on the lip is non-monogamous. For some people, having a long hug could be non-monogamous. For some people, emotionally confiding in secrets could be viewed as as non-monogamous, right? So When we think about how we define monogamy, there isn't one clear specific definition. Same thing with non-monogamy. There's so many ways to be a non-monogamous individual or couple. Part of what's important to realize is that all relationships is seeking to find a balance between safety and security and freedom and autonomy. And in non-monogamous relationships, there may be more of an emphasis on freedom and autonomy. And in monogamous relationships, there may be more of an emphasis on safety and security. But both are important in all kinds of relationships. When we're thinking about non-monogamy, there are types of non-monogamy that have more emphasis on safety and security. 
And there are types of non-monogamy that have more emphasis on freedom and autonomy. So for example, something like a hierarchical open relationship where you have a very clear primary partner and the boundaries and relationship agreements that you have with that partner supersede and define all other kinds of relationship dynamics you may have is a much more safe and secure dynamic for, for most people than something like maybe relationship anarchy, where there is a commitment to the fluidity of relationship styles and dynamics and ways of relating to people and that you're open to things shifting and changing and not wanting to confine or constrain in one clear, specific, ongoing, continuous relationship dynamic, which for some people might create a lot of instability and not provide them with enough safety and security. And for other people, that actually might provide them with just the right amount of safety, security, and the right amount of freedom and autonomy. I guess the last point that I'll make here is that when we're thinking about monogamy and non-monogamy, there are certain forms that are more compatible with each other and some forms that are not very compatible with each other. And I will say that monogamy and non-monogamy is not necessarily incompatible. I have coached some clients where they have a monopoly dynamic where one person is monogamous and the other person is not monogamous, but it's happening consensually. They're both aware and have clear agreements and communicate in the ways that they've agreed to communicate around it. And then it works for both parties involved. Now that doesn't work for everybody. For some folks, that would be a deal breaker. And so when I'm talking with folks who are exploring non-monogamy, I think it's important to name this issue of compatibility and that we're really looking to see, are your relationship styles and relationship needs compatible? And the reality is, is that for some long-term couples, they shift and grow and change individually in ways that means that they're no longer compatible. And so that's part of what we're sussing out. We're sussing out, okay, what forms of non-monogamy are you open to? What would work for you? Is any of this compatible? And also I think a big piece if, if we're talking about opening up is titration, going really slow, helping folks learn how to open up in a slow way where they're setting themselves up for small wins and successes and their attachment system can get these data points that my love can have these other experiences and they come home and we feel safe and we feel connected and we feel bonded. Still, my nervous system can start to settle and feel safe as we're opening up our relationship and exploring incrementally with new people. These are some of the main themes that I think are important to cover. Titration, different types of monogamy, thinking about compatibility, learning how to form agreements is a big thing. So negotiation, exploring boundaries and agreements. And then I think as well, if you want to explore non-monogamy, it's a real big invitation to explore inner wounds, your attachment style, jealousy and insecurity. It's a lot of work to be non-monogamous. It requires a lot of energy to engage in that level of processing on your own as well as processing relationally. And so it's important to consider what your capacity is for that as well. One of people's biggest fears with the monogamous, non-monogamous couple, for instance, is particularly when the non-monogamy, not polyamory, which you really want multiple intimate relationships. You want more than one person as a part of your life, basically. But when it's really about, for instance, just opening up and exploring your sexuality, let's say, and that's just something your partner is either not interested in, or they're not really equipped for, but whatever the circumstances, 
And together you decide one partner is totally willing to let the other one explore sexually. Yeah. And then there's this point at which there's this underlying fear of what if they fall in love with somebody other than me? Yeah, being sexually non-monogamous is very different than being emotionally non-monogamous, right? And it can be hard to separate those two elements, right? We can go into something looking for more sexual connection and develop emotional connection. You know, I think that monogamy isn't necessarily a guarantee that that's not going to happen either. The most common form of non-monogamy is an affair. Yeah. When we are non-monogamous, we are opening ourselves up to more interactions, more opportunities, more possibilities. And so I really, I understand that fear and it, I think requires reassurance, empathy and space holding and titration and some support. You know, I think in order for non-monogamy to work well, I always say folks need three things. Community. It's very hard to be non-monogamous alone. A mentor and hopefully somebody that's done non-monogamy in a way that's similar to the kind of non-monogamy that you want to practice. A therapist or a coach and somebody to support you through all of the material that it brings up so that you can have healthy relationships and interactions with folks. Great recipe. I love that. I really think this is the perfect opportunity for us to talk about the master class. Uh, you have one coming up starting in January 2023. And I can't encourage people enough to take it. I'm imagining the research that you did at Stanford informed a lot of this and helped you build the curricula for it, as well as the classes that you taught at Stanford to students. And now I think you're actually teaching as part of the health and wellness. Yes, the wellness education program. Mm -hmm. And that's outside the university? That's part of adult ed or it's actually for the student population? It's for graduate and undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. Right. They so need it. I wish they had this when I was a grad student there. The wellness ed program is incredible, the things that they offer. It's really progressive. Beautiful. So why don't you talk a little bit about your master class? I would love to. Yeah. So it starts in January. It's a live class meeting that we meet uh, weekly on Tuesdays and it's also recorded. So if you can't catch a class for whatever reason, if you're in a wildly different time zone, or if you just want extra review, it's all available the next day, which is great. And I include science-based data, I include a lot of embodied exploration, tons of skill development. It's very experiential. Uh, you have an opportunity to practice with other folks who are taking the class, but if that feels too overwhelming for you, all of the exercises and discussion groups are optional. So you can really practice tuning into your own body and your own capacity and boundaries and practice that in real time. And also if you're taking it with a lover or a partner or a friend, you have the opportunity to do all of the exercises with them, which can be deeply bonding um, to have similar language and experiences and to be able to geek out about it after class. It's just been such a wonderful thing to have students tell me about how it's been impacting their relationships in real time. And so some of the things that I talk about in this class are the nuances of consent and boundaries. I mean, really, like, actually, how do we consent in a way that feels sexy and empowered? And how do I understand what my boundaries are and how do I use them to create more closeness and more intimacy? We talk a lot about embodiment and nervous system care and how do you engage in healthy self-regulation and co-regulation activities and all of that stuff we talked earlier about emotional intelligence and being able to discern the sensations and emotions in your body. We go over that in deep detail. 
We talk a lot about skills for emotional intimacy, vulnerability and empathy and how to give heartfelt affirmations and to share your needs. We do a lot around sexual intimacy as well, including flirting, seduction, expressing desire, skills for how do you get out of your head and be more in your body? How do you increase your capacity for pleasure? How do you create pleasure with somebody else and explore with them? I talk a lot about erotica and fantasies and unpacking shame because I do think that there is healthy erotica out there that can really support our creativity and our ability to explore and understand what we like. And then I also make sure to talk about conflict and how to repair ruptures in relationships, because I find that when people feel more confident in their ability to repair, they feel less scared to engage in intimacy because they're less worried that something is going to go wrong and that they won't be able to fix it. And then I end with talking about picking partners. And this is applicable even if you're in a monogamous relationship, because I give a formula for how to pick a friend, a colleague somebody that you might want to live with, uh, as well as somebody that you might want to hook up with or have a relationship with. I also talk about ending relationships, which again is valuable even for people in long-term monogamous relationships, because we're ending relationships of all sorts all of the time. Friendships, work relationships, therapeutic relationships, and learning how to cope with breakups, to process grief, and to end relationships in a healthy way is an experience around intimacy that I think is sorely missing that is really important for people to learn. I agree. Intentional endings is not something people know how to do. That's right. And I am not just talking about ghosting. Ending a relationship by doing everything you can to really talk about everything that's happened from the beginning all the way through the middle, honoring the things that worked, that didn't work. I think that's why the class on conflict and repairing is so important. and. I guess this is this is the point where I get to say something that I don't think I've ever said this actually on the podcast, but I say this in my clinical space all the time with patients. Human disagreement is a natural and normal occurrence. It is not conflict. That's right. Anytime people have any kind of hint that there might be misalignment or somehow not agreeing. They immediately characterize it as conflict and they want to run away as fast as they can because they characterize it as conflict rather than seeing it as an an interesting experience, a way to get to know someone better. Agreement, frankly, doesn't happen a lot between humans. I think that's such a valuable and interesting point. And I'd add to that and say that I think conflict is also normal and healthy. And I think that when there are couples where there's no conflict and no need for repair, there is often very little intimacy. When we have intimacy and we're vulnerable and we're opening ourselves up and we're putting ourselves out there and we're invested, that conflict really has the opportunity to arise, to not view that as a problem or a sign of dishealth in a relationship, but to rather view it as normal and opportunity to explore, better understand your partner, better learn how to relate to them and to show up as a better partner for them or colleague or parent or whatever the relationship dynamic may be. Sex has a lot of preference built into it. But preference is also informed by a lot of things that may not actually be genuine or authentic to the person or their sexual system. For instance, the effect of shame. So I'm curious 
if you want to share anything you've noticed about how people's preferences, their sexual preferences can actually be either influenced or even distorted by unhealthy sexual experiences that they may have had. Well, I think sometimes there's a desire to have an experience repeated, but happen in a different way. So there can be this tendency to find yourself in similar situations repeatedly with the subconscious desire for it to complete a different way for you to have some sort of different, ideally healing, empowering experience, but the conditions aren't necessarily different or you haven't developed the skill set yet to be able to have a different kind of experience. And so the same painful traumatic experience ends up getting repeated over and over again. That is a very generous view of repetition compulsion. (laughs) I super like it, actually. It is saying there's some underlying intention for why you may be repeating this compulsively and yet not aware that either you want it to be different consciously or how to make that come about. I love this. Yeah. And so then I think the next piece is just, as you said, helping them think about what is the alternative missing experience that they're seeking? What are the skills and sometimes the new belief systems that they need to adopt to be able to have that? And then probably challenging is who are they choosing? What is their level of discernment and the standards that they have about who they're interacting with? that they're going to pick somebody that's capable of having a different experience with them that they're wanting to have. And so it's really looking at it from all of those different dimensions. I really think part of it is visualizing with as much detail, immersing them in that visualization, and whenever possible, role-playing and practicing. And even after the fact, imagining, okay, what are some things that you could have done differently? Or what are some ways that you might have expressed yourself differently? Or what could you have said in that situation? Because it's helping them practice. It's all good practice. Yeah. I think the last piece is empathy. Empathy for the cycle that they're in. Because they likely, at least my clients, already feel shame. And they feel so much like a problem that needs to be fixed. They feel broken. They feel like they are the cause of these experiences. And so being the source of empathy and de-shamifying That is so important because the shame serves to keep them stuck in the pattern and it makes it even more difficult for them to envision another way because the envisioning another way brings up the shame that they feel for how it is currently. And so making sure as much as I can to help them understand and contextualize why they're having the experiences that they're having and to uh, de-shamify it as much as possible so that they can feel the courage it takes to experiment and explore and practice a different way. There's so many different contexts in which, for me, it's not really shame because shame is a pro-social emotion. And it was the second emotion humans developed as a species because banding together was our superpower. On the savannah, we were very small. And this kind of essential, natural shame is just this little bit of ow. It's like a little embarrassment when you do something that either the tribe has told you isn't in line and doesn't help the survival, or 
you do it and you know that that becomes apparent to you, but it's pro-social. This kind of shame is pro-social because the whole idea is to bring you back into the tribe, to invite you back in. Oh, you know, yeah, that's what happened. And here's how it could be done differently. It's a very pro-social emotion. The thing most people, at least people I work with, what they call shame, they get that little bit of ow, and then they immediately go into an obsessive narrative of what a bad person they are. And that's not shame anymore. This is actually posterior cingulate cortex processing of error detection in the self. And this is the thing that underlies almost all depression. It's so habitual in our culture to make that move because we've lost that tribal sense of, yes, you know, things happen and here's how to redo. We're so individualistic. It's a muscle we've lost. So this is our coping strategy. This horrific, I'll say, addictive narrative of what a bad person I am. And I see this so much. So I, I see this, but then also I know my patients who've had sexual trauma. This is endemic because the shame is not theirs. The shame is the perpetrator's shame. It's a shameful act. But in order to endure, the person who's been perpetrated on will often take on that shame as their own. And they take it on in this way as I am a broken, dirty, awful, horrible person. Mm -hmm. This makes sense what I just said. Sure does, yeah. Yeah, so I think this is one of the really difficult things with working with shame, particularly shame around sex, pleasure, the things that we've been talking about, because it's so overcoupled with this utter sense of disgustingness and brokenness. It's true. And that inner critic voice, it is there to try and protect us and to try and keep us safe. And it just runs amok and takes the microphone and does not know how to share the stage. And I think as you pointed to with sexual abuse, there's a whole nuanced way that that shows up. But I think pervasively, folks have inner critics that have gotten far too much power and control. And the whole purpose of the inner critic is to keep yourselves in line so that you aren't shamed by anybody else. We're going to be our first line of defense. We're going to shame ourselves first so that we don't have to experience it from other people. And the purpose of that is so that we don't feel rejection. But then the reality is, is that we, because of all of the shame that we feel is we're not revealing these pieces that we feel ashamed about. So we're not getting the antidote of acceptance and empathy and belonging that we need to be able to move through the shame. When you think about this from the case of sexual abuse, that's actually completely interrupted because the, as you said, the shame is their shame. And so the process of empathy and acceptance and all of that is far different because it's not working with your own shame. It's working with this projection. Yeah, the shame that's been picked up upon it's so somatically, deeply, deeply ingrained in the nervous system. So you, you gave us great description of the masterclass. And I'm just curious, is there anything else you want to say about it mm. uh, that maybe we haven't said? I don't know. Is there anything we missed? Well, I'll also just share that when I'm not teaching this course live, I do have it on demand, which is a wonderful option for folks as well. Please join me in January. It's always so wonderful to have it be deeply experiential and participatory. 
and that these skills are applicable whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous and that I'm having folks tell me all the time that this is impacting all sorts of relationships, not just their romantic partnerships, because we have intimacy in so many important relationships uh, from work to family to partnership. Wonderful. And we'll just reiterate the joy of taking it live is that there are a huge number of other people who are there, you can interact with them during the class, you can offline. And, and I'm not sure that that's available when you take a can. That's right. And for a lot of folks, that level of community is a deep missing experience. Being able to interact with other sex positive humans is a deeply missing experience. And intimacy is a relational experiential skill. It's hard to learn it from books and podcasts alone. We need to practice it with other humans. This is the perfect opportunity for anyone listening who's been wondering about how to explore aspects of their sexuality and intimacy, and they don't really know where to go. They don't know how to start. This really is the ultimate starting point as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. It's been so wonderful to have your support and I have felt it so deeply and it's been so great to talk with you and I've learned so much and geeking out with you has been a true pleasure. I know we're going to finish, but I really wanted to ask you about one other thing. I'm so curious if you've seen this over the last eight years, the age at which young people have their first relationship or their first sexual experience is happening so much later. And it's fascinating to me. You know, I have patients who literally never had a sexual experience and they're in their mid-20s. I think it's partly because of the prevalence of pornographic material. So you don't really have to have another human. Is this something you've been seeing? Do you have an opinion about this? You know, I have seen it. It seems to be somewhat cultural, and it also seems to be somewhat about, I think, how tech-oriented everybody is and how much interfacing is happening in a, a virtual space. The pandemic exasperated that a lot. I also think that there's some positive components to that as well around consent culture and education around pleasure, because that can delay age at first sex in a way that can be positive and empowering for folks because they're engaging in sexual encounters that are actually more nourishing for them and they're able to be more discerning. I agree. Anything you think we haven't talked about that you want to talk about before we come to a close? This has been such a full conversation. I guess what I want to say is I want to come back. I really enjoyed you. This was a great conversation and I would love to have more sometime down in the line. I think we should talk more. Absolutely. I'm so curious, like, what would you want to talk about? I think talking about long-term relationships and partnership and how to keep intimacy alive and the spark going and how to navigate changes in desires and also the intensity of just living in a busy, busy world and how we make time and space for continuing to develop intimacy and exploration in these long-term relationships. Okay. Well, how about if we do part two? I'm in. Allison Ash, this has been incredible. I will see you at some point for part two. That sounds great. And if anybody out there wants to find me, you can reach me on my website at turnon.love. And I encourage everybody to go to your website because it is chock full of all kinds of 
interesting and useful information. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.